imposters to season two of the You're Not Qualified podcast. I'm so excited to be back. I hope that you all had a wonderful summer so far. Summer's not over yet, but I hope that it's been great so far. And I mean it when I say that the last couple of weeks, I've had a spring of creativity and excitement in my step to come back. I'm stoked. I am so fortunate to be able to be here in your ears in the time of many podcasts. It's insane how many podcasts there are out there. And I thank you so much for listening to me and other people jabber on when you have all of these other choices out there. Mostly me. I don't think the guests jabber, but... As you guys know, I like to come in sometimes with a nice lengthy five-minute explanation, um, and you you put up with it. I love it. This season is going to be special. I have a little more of the framework down of how I want to run the You're Not Qualified podcast and how I want to bring more value of the people that are talking and bring more value of the concept to you. So this season is going to be 10 episodes long, and it's going to have a few bonus episodes as well, so 10 plus. The episodes will be a little shorter, and the editing will be just a little different to lend more to being in the moment with our guests. You can still count on this every Thursday for the 10 weeks. And then the bonus episodes are going to be the last Tuesday of every month. So the last Tuesday of every month, you will have an episode dedicated to you. So myself and a guest will read your emails, the stories about your experiences of not feeling qualified enough, Anything that you want to share about your journey into your career, into your hobby, something that made you very uncomfortable to start, where you are now, how you got there. Maybe you're still solidly on the journey and you're looking to crowdsource some advice or crowdsource some inspiration, whatever it is. So please submit your stories and questions for us about the topics that we've covered on the podcast can be really like anything that might have struck your interest earlier on in one of the other 25 episodes before this, or if there's a question in particular to your situation and you'd love some help thinking through it, please send it over. We will read them on that episode on the last Tuesday of the month. We will talk about it. We'll try to give the best advice that we can. Obviously, I'm not a professional. The people coming on for the respective interests are more professional than I am, at the very least. So they could probably help you, but I'm here to facilitate that. So please email me at ynqpod, that's Y-N as in Nancy, qpod at gmail.com, or shoot me a DM on Instagram at ynqpod. Your story will get read and your questions will attempt it to get answered. I promise you. So today we are talking with Alan Kolak. He's a PhD professor of toxicology. He now also writes science fiction books aimed at the layperson to bring science a little closer to us non-professional scientists. And his... His newfound stretch into science fiction is just that. It's a stretch from his trained background in writing. We talk about that. We talk about how science fiction is really not that far off from real-world science, and I feel that we all might feel that a little too deeply in our bones from the last couple of years we've been living. Just taking a stab in the dark there. That sounds like something out of science fiction. You live in a spaceship, dear. We talk about mad cow disease, and then, of course, a little bit about believing in yourself, because that's just what we do here. All right. Are you excited? Because I am. Let's go season two. Let's jump right in. Don't let the space bugs bite. We're going to give a big welcome to Alan. He is a professor of toxicology at the Idaho Water Resources Research Institute, professor and director. He's been doing toxicology research for 20 plus years, I'm assuming, 
plus is in there, but definitely 20 years. He is also the author of nonfiction and fiction books on toxicology subjects, which is why he's here because of that fiction outpost there, which is a leap. And that's really exciting. Alan, thank you so much for being here again. A quick note for the listeners. I deleted the first one. So Alan is gracious and he's back and he's here to give us all of the good stuff on toxicology. So thank you. You're welcome, Courtney. I'm glad to be here. All right, let's jump in. So you are toxicology expert, researching for 20 years. You write both fiction and nonfiction books about toxicology. What are the typical qualifications of someone who is bringing scientific facts into storytelling in the way that you're doing? Boy, that's a really open-ended question. And it's a great question for that very reason. So let's back up a couple of steps. I was thinking about this earlier on today and this relationship between storytelling and scientific information. And part of the reason why I've been interested in writing both nonfiction books and fiction is I'm really interested in that dividing line, that interface where science becomes so strange that it almost becomes science fiction, where it's hard to believe that it's actually real even when it's real. And fiction can actually play upon scientific finding, things like Jurassic Park, right? Where the fundamental underpinning of Jurassic Park, this fact that we can actually gather genetic information, maybe not from dinosaurs from hundreds of millions of years ago, but certainly from things like frozen mammoths in the Antarctic that have been dead for 10,000 years and actually reconstruct their genome That's a scientific fact. We know the genome of Neanderthals. We know the genome of mastodons and mammoths. And those animals have not been alive for, as I said, thousands of years. So I'm really fascinated with that area where, where is it real? Isn't it real? Is that a scientific fact or does it fall over into fiction? And when dealing with concerns such as those, it's interesting because individuals really resonate with stories. And if you wanna tell someone something, you tell them a story. And it doesn't matter whether it's, if you're telling them a a fictional story or if you're telling them factual information, if you really want it to resonate with them, storytelling is a perfect way to do it. I would agree with that. Sometimes that line between what is fiction and what is non and what happens in science and what happens in the world is really blurred. I feel that way about right now with all of the coronavirus stuff. It does feel like you're living in some post-apocalyptic movie sometimes, like this just does not stop. But no, that's really interesting. Now, relative, Courtney, to you brought up COVID, and I think you're absolutely right. That's a perfect example because we've all seen it play out over the last few years in the press with Dr. Fauci and other experts coming on and trying to give information. And if you provide information to the public, including you and I, I'm not making any kind of delineation between other people and myself. I'm a member of the public too. If you try to provide information to the public in a mass communication way, and you do it from providing them the facts, it doesn't really resonate. So if someone comes on uh, comes on the news or on the radio or in social media or whatever else and says it's really important to wear a mask, mm-hmm. it doesn't resonate. But when you come out and say something like this family did or didn't do certain actions and by having that happen, every member of the family got COVID and, and you personalize it, it re- it's effectively making a story out of it. it. It very often resonates much more fondly with the public than would just the facts themselves. I think that definitely that lends to why you're qualified. That lends to also why other people might think you're unqualified, right? Because you're a scientific researcher, you write scientific papers in the nonfiction manner, and now you've branched out into fiction, but you don't really see that it's too much different. And that I think what's probably makes it such a compelling, great story is, and we'll get more into your book on mad cow disease and how that came about. But it is fascinating to just have that mindset because you just don't see the delineation. It's just, it makes sense because this is the world we're living in and we have 
experience with mad cow disease, but it's the fictionalized version storytelling of it. And I think that makes you completely qualified. And that's awesome. Writing, kind of, again, backing up a couple of steps relative to your to this conversation, when people begin to write a lot, and scientists, educators write a lot, right? We're as much professional writers as we are else. It's very easy to write for a specific audience. And very often for scientific writers, we're writing for each other. So I write for my scientific peers. So we're really talking to each other and not really talking to the public. We're more having a conversation through the scientific literature. We're having a conversation with each other. That creates a problem though, because if the public through whatever reason, isn't interested or doesn't have a vested interest in what we're doing. It's the public who, at the end of the day, it's the public that's paying for much of that science to be done. So we have, in a way, in a purely pragmatic perspective, we have an onus to interact with the public because the public are our stakeholders, right? They're the individuals that are basically paying our bills and we have to be able to let them know why what we're doing is important to, to them. Now, that's a real paradigm shift in science where earlier in my career, 10, 15 years ago, that was not the case. Mm. And the, the, the funding regime was the case, but scientists didn't think of, about as much about the obligation back to the public as they do today. And I think that's a really positive step forward that we're starting to have the communication with the public directly regarding what our science means and what just really just what being a scientist is all about and how that fits into modern day society. That's a perfect segue into the bit that you mentioned before when we chatted months ago, you thought, or you really strongly felt that science communication was an area that you could have some impact in terms of communicating these jargon-laden scientific ideas to the general public. So with that, was that really the reason that you got into this? And the reason because you were like, I think that I could have a play here? I'd love to be able to say that was true, but it's not. And what I mean is I have less noble reasons for going into it than that, because that's certainly a noble goal. And I must admit, I kind of feel very much so that way now. But that was not my motivation for getting into it. In academia, when when a young academic ultimately gets to the point, which usually happens somewhere in their mid to late 40s, early 50s, where you get to the pinnacle of the academic succession. So you can't go any higher up as far as uh, once you become a full professor, that's as high as you can go. There's nothing beyond. You can't become more than a full professor. That's as far as you go. Now you could go into administration, you can do other things, but once you hit that wall of, okay, I've topped out in my field, I can't graduate or I can't, there's really no promotion beyond this step. The door of your office closes and it's a scary thing because you think, okay, I'm maybe 50 years old, maybe a little bit older, younger, And what do I do now for the rest of my career? Now I can continue to do what I've done up until this point, but is that really it? Is that what my academic life is going to be? Is simply that. And at that point in my career, when that happened to me, I thought, I thought two things. I thought I I would like to write for the public. I'd write for the lay science audience, but I also like to work internationally. And I've been able to do both. I've been able to do some international work. And I've also been able to, as you from the books that I've written, start writing for the public or writing with the public audience in mind. And it was fortuitous because I think today in 2022 with COVID and other scientific issues that are at the forefront of the modern or the popular press, the modern news, having scientists that are able to do that, I think is really valuable. It is. And it brings people closer to science because it, it feels so unapproachable in a lot it of ways. It does. And, and another thing that I believe we talked about a few months ago is, Courtney, is the fact that if you think about the popular literature, the popular media, so if you think about television, if you think about Netflix or even Uber, or if you think about, or excuse me, if you think about social media, certain aspects of social media, we're very comfortable 
with certain professions. Mm. Everyone can say, I know what a doctor does. I know what a lawyer does. It may not be 100% true. That's what they do eight to five every single day, but we have a good feel for what they do. What does a scientist do? Do people even know who, can, can people even mention, can people even name a modern scientist? There was a poll done a, a number of years ago and they asked a group of United States citizens, they, they asked them, name a scientist. The number one person that they named was Albert Einstein. Maybe today in 2022, the number two person might be uh, Anthony Fauci, perhaps. But the number three person was, I don't know. They couldn't name a scientist. So uh, one of the things that I wanted to do in my fiction book was bring a scientist into the, the popular lexicon. So people could, in a way, understand through my writing what a scientist actually does, what a, what a scientist's day-to-day -day or certainly month-to-month experience actually looks like. And even though it is fiction, and there's certainly some, perhaps many fictionalized parts to the book, I found that really, I wanted to re remain true to my experience, my 20 plus year experience as a scientist in this is how science is done. And this is how that person's life might actually play out, both the good and the bad. And the fact that things don't always work, experiments don't always go, samples go bad, there can be conflict in the lab, all kinds of things. So I wanted that to come across as well. In that same vein, how did you unlearn the scientific writing style to be able to write fiction? It was a gradual process. And it gets back to what I was saying before about the fact that when I became a full professor, uh, I wanted to write for the lay audience. So the first thing that I started to do was I started to write for a newsletter. It was a quasi-scientific newsletter in that it went out to professionals, pro professional academics. and But I was trying to write in a style so that people didn't have to be from my field to understand what I was writing. Mm -hmm. um, so I was trying to write at basically a, a high school level, at senior level of high school type le level so people could understand the science. And I found that I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed the prospect of putting complex information into, into, a, into a structure that a non-scientist could understand. And really, I had a lot of experience with that because I taught for 20 plus years. And really, that's what teaching is. What teaching at, an, on a, at a university level is taking really complicated material and presenting it to a group of 18 to 25 year olds in a way that they can understand and presenting it to them in, a, in one way, having them say, I don't get it. And then presenting it to them in another way and continuing to bang on that door until they understand what you're talking about. So I didn't know it at the time, but my decades of teaching actually really helped with that ability to take complex information and simplify it in a manner that people can under, could understand. And, and then fr from there, my, the, the newsletter that I was writing, I wound up having about 20 articles because I would write an article quarterly. The newsletter came out four times a year. I wrote for five years, I had 20 articles. And at that point I thought I could put these all together and have a book. So that's what I did. And yeah. that's kind of where the nonfiction book came from. Nice. So you're touching on it a little bit here that you're viewing scientists as also professional writers. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. And absolutely. It, it's, yeah. And they go hand in hand. Yeah, um, do you find that if you don't have a knack for writing as a scientist, it is a disservice? To, to the scientific community? Yeah. Or yeah. to like even, yeah, for the scientists to, your... to get their work across. Yeah. Or it's a disservice to yourself. Yeah. That, it absolutely holds you back. As a professional, we the, uh, an experiment. It's that old adage, right? If a tree falls in the forest, does it make any noise? If a experiment in, is done and it's not written up, either for the scientific community or for the non-scientific community, did it ever happen? And in some ways, the answer is no. It never really happened. If people don't know what you did then for all practical purposes, you never did anything. If it doesn't get out into the quote-unquote public. Yeah. then you never really performed that experiment. You look back at the greats throughout history, and if they hadn't written down what they had done, 
we would have never known about it. Now, sure, maybe somebody else would have done it and maybe somebody else would have written it up. So we would have theories coming from people that aren't the established ones in the field, like Einstein or whoever else. But, but the point is the writing of it is just as important as the actual doing of the experiments. I'm trying to think of if I know scientists' names, like obviously Alan Kolak, but Jane Goodall. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. She's and she's huge in the conservation efforts too, which is amazing. Even now, she just got her own Barbie. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, they made a Barbie for her. But yeah, no, that's that's a really good point. As a now woman who was a young girl in the '90s and early 2000s, growing up with Barbies, I now feel different ways about Barbies. But I will say that the Jane Goodall Barbie is really awesome. Like good on them. That's really cool. So I am going to switch gears here in a little bit with Alan and we're going to talk about his book twist on mad cow disease, his science fiction book. But I did want to say, do you guys remember when mad cow disease was quite a scare in the US? I, I looked it up. It was circa 2003 or actually maybe exactly 2003, that the first case was reported in the U.S. And the most recent case was found in August of 2018 in the U.S. So that would have put me at 15 years old in 2003. So I was in high school and I specifically remember being at my, my friend's house and her mom having a very hard time with the news of mad cow disease and being very concerned. She had bought extra milk and <laughs> everything thinking that the stores would shut down and people would kind of go crazy for resources, which has happened since then. At the time, I was like, I don't think that would ever happen. That seems like a zombie movie. But we now know, no, that happens. If we remember the grocery store shelves in March of 2020, absolutely can happen. But Mad Cow Disease was a pretty big thing in the news right up there with bird flu same circa I think bird flu definitely circa 2003 because I remember that in high school as well but uh we will get more into mad cow disease and his science fiction book twist here in just a moment and it's it's really interesting stuff but damn like it's pretty crazy you're really worried about it kind of didn't really blow up and now look at us I would love to know more about the work of fiction then that you have and tell the audience about your work mad cow disease what the inspiration was behind it have you always just been really interested in disease in itself or specifically mad cow disease let's get into it sure and where the genesis of my science fiction book that's called The Genesis of Twist actually came out of my non-science fiction book, Modern Poisons. And in Modern Poisons, I, so again, I have to back up for a second in that when I was younger, when I was a graduate student and onward, I came across a book by an ecologist out of the University of Georgia, whose name was Paul Collinbaugh. The book's still available. It's not in print, but you can find it on in places like Amazon.com. You, you can find the book. I'm not saying that, I'm not plugging the book. I'm just saying it's available out there. Mm. The book was called Why Big Fierce Animals Are Rare. And what the book was, it was, it was a paperback book. It was a paperback, maybe 200 pages, 20 chapters, each chapter about 10 pages long. Each chapter took about no exaggeration, between five and 10 minutes to read, very simply written. But when you started to look at each chapter, it dealt with a fundamental axiom of ecology, particularly where ecology was at the time, back in the 1980s, early 1990s. But it dealt with that, that, that specific axiom of ecology and explained it in a way that was very easy to understand. And Paul Collinball became my hero because of that. And it was this little paperback 200 page book, which, and I know this because it's penciled on the first page of the book. I believe the book when I first 
bought it cost something like $2.95 way back in the 80s. But, but this is the single most important book act professionally, scientifically of my career. And certainly I'd have the big 500 page massive toxicology books and mm-hmm. biochemistry and everything else. But this little 200 page paperback was incredibly insightful for me because it showed that you can talk about really complicated material and you can do it in a manner that the layperson can understand. So the whole reason I told you that is because in Why Big Fierce Animals Are Rare, it's effectively 20 chapters, each chapter is 10 pages long. So when I went to write my book, Modern Poisons, I wanted 20 chapters each chapter about 10 pages long because I was channeling colon because I liked it so much. And so as it got towards the end of the book, I was a little bit, I guess you could say running out of material, but I still wanted 20 chapters. So I started thinking about unusual areas within the field of toxicology. And I started to think about this idea where what toxicology is the study of toxic chemicals, right? Chemicals, poisons, things like arsenic or strychnine, or we all know the litany list of potential toxic molecules and their effect on people. It's the effect of chemicals on biology. But towards the end of the book, I started thinking, what's a chemical? And you can, and you can think of things like elements, something like carbon or oxygen or hydrogen. And that's a very simplest chemical, right? Because it's one, one molecule. And then you can build compounds by putting those molecules together and your compounds can get progressively larger and larger. Well, as these compounds become larger and more complicated, you leave the realm of chemistry and you start to fall into the realm of biology. Because if you think about things like proteins are very large molecules where they're, and I don't want to get too scientific here, but they're a string of amino acids all joined together. And then they form like a bird's nest. They form a tertiary, or in other words, a three-dimensional structure. So it kind of looks like a bird's nest where you've got twigs and sticks all poking out, but you've got this kind of generalized form. This thing is gigantic. If you compare it to a hydrogen atom or an oxygen atom, this thing's billions of times larger. And you can get even larger than that. You can go to things like DNA or you can go into other areas. And there, But there has to come a point where a chemical leaves the realm of chemistry and enters into the realm of biology. Like everyone I think would agree that a cell is a biological entity. A hydrogen ion, a hydrogen atom is a chemical entity. You've got all this, where does, what happened? What happened in between there? Where's that interface between biology and chemistry? Right, like what is the definition difference? Yeah. And that is an area that I think is really rife for both really interesting science, like all the science about the COVID vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. The SARS COVID vaccine isn't live. It's a bunch of, of a, a large macromolecule, DNA, inside a cover. So it's basically a packaged little ball of genetic material. That's all it is. It's not alive. It itself is not alive. It has no heartbeat. It has no metabolic rate. It doesn't, it's not really alive. It's part of a living system. But is it biology or is it chemistry or where does it fall along that continuum? And I find that really fascinating. Oh, yeah. And again, it's fortuitous, but because I was writing pre COVID, but COVID falls directly into that kind of question of of where is that interface between chemistry and biology and how does that land? By taking a shot in the dark, I feel like, at least like how I understand it, it would become biology if it's inhabiting a biological being, like if it's inhabiting a person, if it's inhabiting an animal. So like the mad cow disease, maybe before it's in the cow, they get it, I believe, from grazing. Is that right? Oh, but like grass is alive. And if it's in the grass... Like maybe before? Yeah, no, that's like a, what's the answer? (laughs) There really is no answer because it's at that point where uh, 
The answer is kind of both and neither at the same time. It's Schrodinger's cat, right? If you don't open the box, you don't know if the cat's dead or alive. And it's, you don't really know. And it depends upon the context. Now, the book that I wrote is about prions. And what prions are, is prions are, again, these proteins. So these bird nests, this macromolecule that is a bird nest of hundreds of amino acids. And amino acids are a specific molecule that makes up protein. And it's basically a string of like a string of pearls, a string of these amino acids. The only issue with this string is that pearl, if you will, on a pearl necklace, each pearl has a little bit of a charge to it. So if you have two char two pearls that are next to each other and one's positive and one's negative, they're going to attract to each other. And if you have two negatives next to each other, they're going to repel each other a little bit. So because of that, you don't wind up with a string of pearls. You wind up with a bird's nest. It starts to fold in on top of each other due to all these electrochemical forces. It builds this three-dimensional molecule. Now, the really cool thing about prions, which is what the, my book is about. The really cool thing about prions is that if, a, if we all have prions in us because we make the prions, but prions also can lead to things like mad cow disease. They can lead to adverse health impacts predominantly because they alter the, they alter brain function. Interesting thing about prions is relative to this bird nest of tertiary structure, if the bird's nest looks like this, looks flat, then the prion is, in, is relatively benign. It's relatively harmless. But if the bird's nest kinks and it looks like an L, so there's a kink to it, then what happens is it, that bird's nest will aggregate with other L's, other bird's nests, other prions, and develop an aggregate. Those aggregates, if they occur in neurological cells, wind up impairing the nerve function. So what happens in, in mad cow disease or chronic wasting disease in deer or elk, what happens is that they neurologically slow down. So they act like they're drunk or they act like they're, they're neurologically impaired. They act like they have Parkin, Parkinson's disease. They're stumbling, they're staggering. They can't really, really function in the way that they normally do. As tragic, and this also can happen in humans, as tragic as that is, and I don't mean to be insensitive because it is a fairly tragic thing if you are the recipient of these maladapted prions, as tragic as it is, it makes a great platform for a science fiction story right? Because now you have this external entity that, as you were saying before, a cow could actually, it could be deposited on the grass from other cows. Another cow could come along and eat it and then develop this, develop mad cow disease. And then humans, should they eat the brain or spinal cord of that cow, could get the disease as well. So it, it, it transfers from one organism to another in that way. So again, it's a great, it's just a great playing field for a science fiction story. In that then, how did your expertise in toxicology help you and hinder you in writing fiction? What roadblocks did you run into? The way that it helped me, it helped me out enormously because I, as I was saying before, I wouldn't have known about prions before doing the research that I did for my book, Modern Poisons. I didn't know that ahead of time. So it being able to do the research and then put the research into twist was real, was really valuable. The place where it hindered, as I was saying earlier on in this conversation, what scientists like to do, and let me even back up before that, right? It's interesting because if we're going to talk to each other, if people are going to talk to each other, and they're going to convey information. Storytelling is a great way to do that. And in storytelling, very often there's a story arc, right? Where they're the protagonist, the characters, then there's peril, there's problems, and then there's resolution, right? And that's the classic story arc. Now in storytelling, the, in, in storytelling, like as in fiction, the introduction of the characters 
is relatively short. You introduce the people. My, my protagonist is Alex Pendergraf. He happens to be a professor at Iowa State. He happens to have a wife and a son. He happens to have a post, have a graduate student that he works with. You introduce the characters. And then as soon as possible, maybe even in the first sentence of the book, you throw your character into peril and you force your char character to struggle against that peril. And that's the book. The whole book is their struggle against peril and how their character is able to either either overwhelm the problem or be sucked under the problem and not survive the problem. But it, it's how your character deals with that problem and how that peril changes your character throughout the course of the book, either for better or for bad. And in really great books, I'm not saying that mine is, I'm just saying in great books historically, it, it does both. It changes the character for the good. It also changes the character for the bad. It makes them more real. It makes them more, it may, they may win the day, but they may be jaded by the struggle. So that's how fiction storytelling is done. If you look at science writing as a form of so storytelling, which it is, what we as scientists love to do is we love to introduce. We love to give information and more information and more information. And we're not really, there's really not, right now, today is July 14th, 2022. We've just launched a, not just launched, but we're just getting the first photos back from the largest space telescope ever launched by humans. We're getting photos back of deep space that we thought was absolutely black and had nothing in it. And we're getting photos back of these areas of space full of galaxies and stars and just full of cosmic material. That's really wonderful. Oh, but yeah. everything that I just said was, here's a fact, here's a fact, here's a fact, here's a fact, <laughs> here's a fact. And there's no peril. And again, I'm not dissing the science when I say this. There's no peril there. There's no real story. So as scientists, we like to give people information. But there's not a whole lot of peril associated with it. And then the ending, and then the ending for scientists invariably is look how interesting all this information is. Give us some more money so we can give you some more information. I do that all the time. That's what scientists do. But that's not, that's one form of storytelling. But it was, but so directly getting to your question, it was trying to take that type of storytelling and roll that over into creating characters and putting your characters into peril is another type of storytelling. And, yeah. and that was, that, that, that was, and continues to be challenging for me and being able to craft a story where the reader finds it, but finds it both believable, but also at the same time finds it interesting or enough or suspenseful enough, or that the peril is deep enough to keep them turning the page. Yeah. It's a challenge. Yeah, it, science books that science fiction books that I read, that's something I had never thought of is the concepts can be really out there sometimes, but the author knows enough about writing fiction to hook you enough where you find that you can relate to something, maybe a character or probably a character or maybe like a journey that they're on and that you want to continue reading. And yeah, and like a nonfiction research. I could imagine that is really difficult to cross that over. What is the hook? What will this protagonist do? Yeah. No, that, that's exactly it. So it, that's challenging. But at the same time, it, it's also really fun mm -hmm. because it allows you to take your structural brain, the way that you write and say, all right, now I'm going to switch and completely change change the, the modus operandi of how I'm doing this. Instead of writing where I am going to tell you, like Courtney, you and I could sit down and I could tell you facts about prions or facts about toxicology or facts about, and I would love it. And I, it's called lecturing. And I, that's what I do as a, that's what I've been doing for a career for the last 25 years. Some of it might, you might find interesting. Some of it you might just find God awful boring as could be. 
it doesn't make effective fiction. It doesn't make effective fiction storytelling. So it's interesting to be able to try to take your mind and say, okay, break yourself from that style of, in a way, storytelling and jump over and use a different style of storytelling. Mm -hmm. it's, it's both challenging, super challenging, but also really fun and really rewarding when you actually get to the point where, you know, some of the text you actually enjoy. You, it's just, well, I, I just the way that's written. That just seems really, just seems really nice. And not saying that all of like, like difficult, obviously it's not, it's not like a plane of this is what I define as difficult, but would you say that writing fiction is more difficult than nonfiction for you because of that? I would say so. Okay. Because, and again, I think if you go all the way back, not all the way, but if you go back to the idea of writing, let's say articles, the articles that I write, I write half a, three to five of these every single year. And these are articles that I present to my peers, to mm -hmm. other scientists. That's very mechanical. It's, it's very mechanical. It would be like, and I'm not dissing woodworkers or carpenters or anything like that, but it would be like a carpenter shop belting out tables and belting out tables where you're making oak tables, one oak table after another. The design changes a little bit, but you've got four legs, you've got a top, it's oak, and it's they're pretty, you look at one next and every single one's an oak. You can say, yep, that's an oak table. If you compare that to an artist and an artist generating sculpture, wooden sculpture, the sculpture that artist may make in September may look very different than the sculpture that artist makes in October, right? Now they're art, they're sculpture, but it's very, it's very different. The point that I'm making is science writing, and there, there are certainly good and bad science writers, no question about that. Yeah. But science writing is mechanical. It's machine shop. It's the Ford auto plant stamp out Model Ts. That's what science writing is. Because you want to minimize the writing and highlight the actual science, right? Because yeah. that's what it's all about. But if you try to do that in a novel or if you try to do that in an article for social media, people aren't going to read it because it that's it's frankly it's not really all that interesting from a stylistic perspective relative to what someone would like to see in a story yeah. so i think in a lot of ways story the writing fiction is harder from that perspective it's much much, much less mechanical and much more nuanced and it's you've developed the muscle to nonfiction for years and years and years and it's right. also it's just newer to mm -hmm. you that's absolutely true. Do you yeah, want to yeah. write a second? Is there going to be a twist too? Is the protagonist's journey going to continue? I think so. Alex Pendergraf has more to tell people than what he has told people in the first book. Or maybe another way of saying it is, I have more to tell people using that character than that character had was able to portray in the first book. So yeah, I'd like to bring him back and I'd like to see I'd like to see a twist too. I already know what the biological if he was if his nemesis in the first book was prions, I already know what his nemesis in the second book is going to be. Now it's just a question of filling out the rest of it but, <laughs> and putting him into and I will tell you this, the the trajectory of peril in the second book is going to be of a greater magnitude than it was in the first. As it should. At yeah. Rate. Absolutely. He thought he had a tough time in the first book. He, he hasn't seen anything yet. Oh man. I feel like that's been the last three years. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly. That's exactly. We right. have no idea what's coming. Yeah, That's exactly right. I have a very abstract question for you and it's okay if you don't have an answer, but your mention of the telescope and the image that people, everybody has seen it, I'm sure by now, but it's incredible. In your research in toxicology, do the toxins on earth lend to at all understanding if there's toxins outside of our planet? That's a that's an interesting question because it it really depends upon how you define toxins, ah. and and that that gets into a whole almost metaphysical converse <laughs> or existential conversation because the the work that I've done has primarily been done on anthropogenic chemicals that have actually been synthesized by humans that never existed in nature before. 
Now, one thing, right, Courtney, you and I could write a book, write a science fiction book just on this. You can envision if a meteor was to hit Earth and then scientists went to that meteor and analyzed that meteor and found chemicals that we had synthesized that didn't exist previously, mm. it could be an indication of extraterrestrials, right? Mm. If you look at a meteor and you're finding things like microplastics or nanoparticles, the kind of things that are in the popular scientific press today, all of which were made by humans, that kind of indicates that those things probably weren't, didn't, didn't originate outside of the earth without some intelligent organization, intelligent being putting them there to begin with. So it's a great first, first page for a scientific, for Ooh. a science fiction story. I think. Yeah, I think it is. That is, uh, that's a really good call. I think you should write it. <laughs> that sounds really great. And you might be able to, I don't even know who you would talk to, astrophysicists? Yeah, absolutely. Or, yeah. absolutely. yeah. Like yeah. co-author a book. That yeah. would be so awesome. Yeah, exactly. It would the be joining of the fun. sciences. Yeah. <laughs> and it's fun because what we were just talking about there, it's really fun because you could sit down with, if scientists were, if a scientist was amenable to it, you could sit down with any scientist and usually they're more amenable. You give them a couple of beers, you give them something to drink and they'll loosen up over time. And you start talking to them about these areas. It's kind of what I was telling you before about modern poisons, where towards the end of the book, I started getting into these gray areas of fuzzy places where we really don't have a whole lot of answers. And that's the place where a lot of this, a lot of this potential um, science fiction can definitely come from. And you look at the great science fiction works out there, Frankenstein, what if you could, what if you could reanimate um, dead material, right? Jurassic mm -hmm. Park, which again, is in a way the same thing, right? Yeah. What if you could reanimate dead material? And you can go on and on. And the, that kind of area, which is the, those little, those gray areas in science are perfect grounds for, for perfect fodder for science fiction novels, and also perfect fodder for areas where you can, through science fiction, ask questions about the human condition. What does it mean to be human? If if we're, again, if a meteor lands and we're finding microplastics on a meteor and it really did come from out of space, what does that tell us about our uniqueness in the universe? Yeah, it's just a question. It is, and it's a question that's been around for so long. Frankenstein's my favorite all-time novel. I have a tattooed sleeve dedicated to it. But Mary Shelley wrote that in 1818. So it's yeah. like she was asking questions and proposing an idea that nobody had even thought of yet. Exactly. And exactly. it's incredible how far it's come. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Definitely. I don't want to take up a whole lot more time, but I'm really interested in your time in Chile. And you obviously travel to speak on these topics. And I'm sure that you meet a lot of people who might have the same career goals as you, or they're similarly very interested into branching into something that they might feel that they're unqualified for pursuing even like scientific works. What kind of advice do you have for people who are just nervous about getting into it, nervous about branching out? Branching out into writing um, is easy. It's easy to give advice. The, the advice is not easy to take as far as, uh, it, it's difficult, and I find that's true for myself as, as much as anyone else. But the advice, if someone wants to write, regardless of what they want to write on, if someone wants to write, the advice that I would give them is write, is just do it. Carve out a time. I happened to, I had, a, for years, I had a child living in the house. We had a child living in the house. He's now aged out and is on his own. But because of that, I had family duties. I had dog duties. I had wife duties. I had house duties. And of course, work. So the best time for me to write was between 5 and 6 a.m. And I wound up where it became my writing time. And that's where I wrote Modern Poisons. That's where I wrote Twist. And that's where I'm writing my next book, which is called Generally Regarded as Safe. And so my point is, carve out a time, 
put it like at your exercise regime or put it like going to the grocery store or whatever resonates, going to church, whatever resonates with you and just say every day, three times a week, whatever it is, I am going to sit down. I'm going to put my butt in the seat and I am going to write. And there are days, including this morning for me, full disclosure, where I sit down for my hour of writing and I don't, I, I do not write a word. I look at the page and I think I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be writing right now, but it's, but the very fact that I did that this morning, tomorrow morning, I'll be able to sit down and write. So even if you feel like it's not working, even if you have, even if you're questioning the quality of your work, whatever you're doing, because we all do it, don't let that stop you. Just keep going. Just keep sit going. Down tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. Sit down tomorrow and do it and just dedicate the time. I love the book title generally regarded as safe. Is that things like ibuprofen and stuff that you're talking about? <laughs> it, it actually is. I it's, love it's, it. it's, we have for about the last 120 years, it all really started to happen right around 1900. But from 1900 until now, the humans have been at a, an absolute track record pace of developing organic chemicals, developing chemicals that previous to us never existed. And we develop these things, whether they're antibiotics or like you were saying, pain suppressors, antihistamines, you name it, pharmaceuticals, pesticides, plastics on our skin, in our stomachs. We eat them, we breathe them, we're putting them into the environment. And they did not exist 120 years ago. Many of them, very possibly most, and you could even say virtually all are benign. They're not gonna lead to the, they're not gonna kill anyone. They're not gonna lead to the end of the ecosystem as we know it on the earth. However, there are some pretty nefarious chemicals that we have synthesized in the last 120 years. And just just like with the covid back with with SARS covid when covid came out right the current administration the trump administration at the time started to talk about potential chemicals that could be used to combat covid without really knowing what they were talking about because the research hadn't been done to prove the effectiveness of those chemicals in the early months of the pandemic and we have been acting that way relative to chemicals for 120 years. And that's what the book is about. The, our struggle with the fact that our technology had superseded our understanding of the peril of these chemicals on both ourselves and on the ecosystem. We also have this blind trust, especially for like pain suppressants in my experience, even just this last weekend, I was out mountaineering and I had a pain in my foot. And so I was going to get ibuprofen on my pack, but somebody was like, oh, I have it ready right here. And they handed me a pill bottle with a bunch of different types of pills in it. They just like, they take it around with them and they're like, oh, it's the red one. And I just, I'm like, oh, great. And I pop it in there. I don't know if it actually is like what she said it was, but it's, oh, what's the worst that could happen? The book isn't so much about winning our victories or heralding our losses so that we can wring our hands and say we're all doomed. That's not really what the book is about. What the book is about is, and in a way it gets back to what I was saying earlier about writing fiction. It's about the, the peril right? And the fact that in 120 years, we have been on the precipice of having to, being forced to deal with this peril. Sometimes we do it successfully, sometimes we don't. But it's, we're on that knife edge where we're always dealing with chemicals that we really don't understand. And we think we understand a much, to a much larger extent than we actually do. Yeah. And it leads to problems. It leads to problems. Yeah. Absolutely. And problems that we also have no idea would be a problem. Probably never would have guessed that. That's exactly right. That's yeah. a, that is exactly what happens. And what happens in food and drug safety is that, and, and Courtney, it's interesting because you hit the nail on your head, on the head, because I think people feel like perhaps we are now in a 
very safe food and drug environment, which in the United States is true for the most part. And we've always been there. And that's not true at all. And what has happened is that very often what's happened is that there was a disaster. And because there was a disaster, a chemical disaster, uh, there was a ratcheting down of food and drug regulation that kind of responded to that disaster. And then everyone was like, okay, we've got that fixed. And then there's a period of time. And then there's another disaster that occurs relative to a new wrinkle relative to chemicals that we hadn't thought about before. And then there's another disaster. So we ratchet food and drug safety down a little bit more. Okay, now we're fine. And then there's another disaster. And okay, we ratchet down a little bit more. Now we're fine. And there, and that's how we go through it. Our food and drug safety, and in a way you can even say our public health is almost by definition reactive yeah. to things that are happening that we didn't anticipate. Who anticipated that out of a China market, a virus would come that would actually sweep across the world and kill millions of people? No one saw that coming. No, yeah, as we were talking about earlier, that is something out of a science fiction novel. It absolutely is. It absolutely Yeah, and little did we know that the, at least the, oh man, I don't think it was the FDA. Who was it in the United States that has been studying mRNA and been getting it ready for a global pandemic? And then Excuse they me. were ready to go. Yeah. 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 And we had no idea. I didn't know any of that was even behind the scenes, but why would we be privy to that if we don't have to be? And like until- And also yeah. that, getting back to what we were talking about before, that right there is a fact, right? That's a fact. And people like, you, it's not just, why would we be interested? Why would we be privy to that information now? It's a fact of someone could have told you that 10 years ago or five years ago, you would have been like, yeah, that's nice. Yeah, like, yeah, because it's just a piece of information and we're so inundated with information and scientists, engineers, medical people, they love, including myself, we love to give out information. We live in an information overload environment and without some sort of context to put that in, meaning an emotional context, it doesn't really have much meaning. Yeah, that's, and, yeah. And, and that gets full circle comes full circle about why I'm writing the books that I'm trying to write. It, both the nonfiction and the fiction is to provide an emotional attachment and an emotional meaning to these kind of questions. And the things we live with in our lives and we have no idea. They're in our yeah. environment, we have no idea. Right, right, and right. Until it's on the news. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then we know, and then we're scared. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. To, to bring it, then in terms of your qualifications and the lovely ending question here, the naysayers I'm sure will maybe say, a scientist really has no business in writing fiction or no business in trying to captivate a different audience. It's a lot of it would be really confusing. Like, why can't I do this? But have you had anybody say, this is not your realm and how would you deal with that? Or if somebody did, how would you deal with that if you haven't had it happen yet? The way that it happens is, <laughs> the way that it happens is that we all, we all wake up in the morning, we all go to bed at night. And really during that interim period, let's say we all have 16 hours a day. We have 16 hours of usable time per day during which we have to eat, we have to take care of our families, we have to take care of our loved ones, we have to we have to walk our dog, we have to do we have to mow the lawn, we have to do all that and we have to go to work, all that other stuff. And but still we're all dealing with a finite amount of time. And what I've gotten I I have yet to have anyone say to me what are you doing? What are you writing fiction for? Like, why are you doing it? I, no one's been so bold to come out and just ask me that question, like straight up in a critical manner. No one's done that. But what I get is I get the eye roll of, as a scientist, you have, let's say, again, if you take out three meals a day, you take out taking a shower, you take out walking your dog. As a scientist, you have nine hours a day. So you're now de dedicating one of those nine hours to writing a 
science fiction book that maybe no one's ever going to read? What are you doing? Like, how come you, do you really think professionally that's a good use of your, of your time? So I've, I've definitely sensed that some individuals feel that way, but right. That's when, not to show my age, but I will anyway, when Bob Dylan left being a folk singer and went more mainstream, a lot of people felt that way about him. Hey, what are you doing? Why are you making these, this change? And a lot of people in folk music really felt betrayed by that switch. My, my point being that people, when you're within a group like scientists and you start telling other scientists that you have professional non-scientific activity that can hurt people that can that that can hurt some people's feelings or that can make people ju somewhat judgmental and i have felt that and i have felt that kind of judgment from some of my peers and full disclosure i have felt that but at the same time it gets back to what we were talking about earlier where doing scientific experimentation which full disclosure I love, I absolutely love it. I've been doing it for 30 years and absolutely love it. However, at the same time, it's the Ford Motor Company Model A Beltline, just chunking out an, a car every five minutes. It's, it's machine shop. It's as much as I love generating the end product, there's a mechanics to it that that becomes pretty pretty rote after a while and i just felt like i needed more and i also felt like I, I felt like i needed to talk to you i needed to talk to the public about what being a scientist is and it's a way that i think that people like carl sagan or anthony fauci or there there are there are people out there that are good at interacting with with the public and it's not an either or kind of thing. This doesn't take time away from my science. This actually really sincerely, it makes me a better scientist. Yeah. By doing this, I'm not losing time. I'm actually gaining time because I'm gaining an insight that I otherwise wouldn't have. Exactly. It and it expands how you think it expands who you can talk to and it, I feel like it would make you better at your craft it would make it if nonfiction scientific writing one of the hurdles is to approach those with your scientific findings who wouldn't normally just understand that make it easier to explain it to them if you have to do it fictionally yeah yeah it's I think it just bridges a gap yeah I do too and you know, truthfully that was something that I never really I don't think I really thought of that at the time I decided I wanted to write for the lay public. I wasn't really thinking in those kind of, in a way with those type of noble goals, but it's developed over time. And, and I'm so glad that I did. Thank you so much for the time again, Alan. I really appreciate it. And I wish you all the best in your next book, Books. And everybody go find Twist. I know that there's a few different titles of Twist out there, but we'll also put your name in there so they can. Um, Sounds great. All right, Courtney, it was a pleasure talking to you again. Uh, well, thank you so very much and have a good rest of your night. Thanks, you too. Thanks. Bye. Bye. I think we should go down the science route more often, eh? What do you think? This was a really in-depth conversation. And there were even, honestly, while editing this, I like would stop it and go back and be like, oh man, he is so insightful. His experience is really, in a lot of ways, relatable, a lot of ways not relatable, but not relatable in the way that you're like, ooh, I could really learn something from this. At least that's, that's my takeaway. And I really hope that you feel at least a little bit of the same, but hopefully you really identified with his message around find that transferable lane. We haven't really talked about that. And dive in and sit down and just try and continue to try if it means a lot to you. And it will click. You will find an avenue. You will find a niche. You will find a way. Absolutely. There is just no doubt about it. If you keep at it, it, it will happen. Thank you so much for being here. Season two kicking off. I'm so stoked. 
I can't wait for what's to come. There's going to be nine more episodes of the main podcast on Thursdays. Remember that every last Tuesday of the month, there's going to be a bonus episode for you where we read your things. We read your emails about your questions and your experiences. So please send those in. Either DM me or email me at ynqpod at gmail.com. I want to hear from you love to hear from you and your experiences and we can all do this together and make this just a platform of helping one another and learning from one another that's uh that's kind of <laughs> that's a little bit uh kitschy i guess it's like it's kind of sappy but you know what whatever people that know me know I'm, a, I'm a bit of a sap so this is this is why i do this stuff i want to help you i do think that we should keep up the trivia what do you think all right so for this week trivia, I was really curious what the worst pandemic in human history was. Did a quick Google search, very quick, means that it might not be the 100% right answer, but this is a lot of people and it's very sad. Forewarning, just up top here, warning you. So the HIV AIDS pandemic, which was at its peak from 2005 to 2012, killed 36 million people. An astronomical incredibly tragic amount of people. I can't wait for the what the rest of the season brings. I'm going to link all of the socials and uh, where to find Twist in the show notes. And I hope to see you next week. All right. Bye.